This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Professor Robert S. Miola. He is Gerard Manley Hopkins Professor of English and Professor of Classics at Loyola University, Maryland. His research interests include Shakespeare, Renaissance drama and poetry, and the classical backgrounds of English literature. He is the author of Shakespeare's Reading, Shakespeare's Rome, Shakespeare and Classical Comedy, Shakespeare and Classical Tragedy, as well as numerous articles, most recently Early Modern Antigone's Receptions, Refractions, Replays, forthcoming in Oxford's new journal Classical Receptions. He has also edited Hamlet and Macbeth for W. W. Norton and Company, as well as an edition of Chapman's Iliads. He also did editing work for the Comedy of Errors and Measure for Measure for other publishers. So I'm grateful to have one of the best scholars out there today in the field to discuss Shakespeare's bloodiest masterpiece, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Are you there, Professor Miola? Yes. Hello. Hello, I'm there. Do you hear me? Yes, very well. Okay. So, when were you interested in Macbeth when you edited it for the for the Norton and Company publisher? Oh, I've always loved the play, and um, it is a dark, uh, difficult, as you say, bloody play, but um, it's not just um, a horror show, a horror story of that. It has uh, wonderful theatrical moments. It's attracted some great actors and actresses, and the poetry is really beautiful. So I first edited it in 2004 for Norton. So I was working on it in the early uh, 2000s, and then uh, in 2014, again, spurred uh, partially by uh, Patrick Stewart's uh, wonderful interpretation. So it's it's just a rewarding, beautiful uh, play. And it's been adapted um, by many different writers and cultures, so it keeps getting reimagined. So the opening of the play, it goes like this. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, gold, and rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, that'll be ere the set of sun. Where the place? Upon the heath, there to meet with Macbeth. I come, Grimalkin, Paddock calls anon. Fair is foul, and foul is fair, hover through the fog and fill the air. And then the scene shifts to introduce us to Macbeth, where the captain has this beautiful lines of poetry where he speaks on Macbeth. Doubtful it stood, doubtful being the battle, as two spent swimmers that do cling together and choke their art. The merciless MacDonald, worthy to be a rebel for to that the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him. From the western isles of Kerns and gallow glasses is supplied, and fortune on his damned quarrels smiling showed like a rebel's whore. But all's too weak, for brave Macbeth, well he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution, like valor's minion carved out his passage till he faced the slave, which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him, till he unseamed him from the nave to the chops and fixed his head upon our battlements. Yeah, that's uh, that's our first view of him, the great warrior, brave Macbeth, Bologna's bridegroom. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the play... It, play doesn't really start with that, but as you well note, it starts with the witches. So that, uh, And it starts with them in the midst of some sort of ritual, it seems, with the thunder and the lightning and the, the incantatory speech. So uh, we don't get the usual, or what Shakespeare did many times, exposition. We don't get, you know, any background. We don't get any prologue. We don't get... Um, any discussion of the situation in Scotland. We don't get anything. We get these witches on stage, and and then we get this introduction for this great, brave hero. And um, 
it, it happens rapidly. You know, it's a, Shakespeare's at the height of his powers. Early 17th century, he knows how to open a play. The thunder and the lightning could be spectacular on stage, and it's spooky and scary. And, this, and these are people who believed in the supernatural. They believed in witches. And King James I was a strong believer that witches existed, and Thomas Brown, one of the great prose writers of the period, was believing this theory that if witches don't exist, then it almost it's almost as if God doesn't exist. That's how powerful the belief was. And then to have Shakespeare introduce it like this is a deliberate engagement with how things are going and how people understand witches and witchcraft and the forces around them. He's becoming very supernatural, and we see a lot of this in his later plays. So Macbeth, in some ways, feels like a late play, so to speak, even compared to the other tragedies he wrote and the other plays absolutely. he's... Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, he's, he's at the height of his power, and he's exploring the dark side, so to speak. I mean, he does that in... I mean, you get the dark side in Lear, but the demonic in Lear... Uh, the supernatural evil in Lear is located firmly in the human heart. I mean, it's it's people who are capable of supernatural cruelty. Whereas in Macbeth, it is that, and it is also outside. And Shakespeare's playing with the relationship and asking, it seems, so where where does, where is all this, where does this terrible evil come from? And, um, He's going to answer that play. He's going to answer that differently in different plays. But Macbeth, um, you know, he's he's giving one external force and the other. And the witches have been wonderfully portrayed um, and variously portrayed um, in films and in in productions and uh, and it's and adapters of the play have almost always expanded the role of the witches. And we think that actually the state that Macbeth is in, that it was adapted perhaps by Thomas Middleton, who seems to have expanded, added witches songs in the fourth act and, and so on. So, yeah, quite an exciting opening. Before I go on to go behind the historical backgrounds for Macbeth, I want to discuss a little question I had in my mind some people say sure. that Macbeth was longer than what we have now, but there are some instances where it seems like Shakespeare got what he wanted in the final shape of Macbeth, where it's so rapid and it feels like it's just the right amount of speed and space for the whole play itself. I think it's pretty clear that the version that we have in Folio, 1623, represents um, a snapshot in the history of the play, and and that it probably underwent some revision uh, from the first draft of it, which we don't have, and the first performances of it, uh, which we don't know that much about. The um, the one eyewitness account of an early performance of Macbeth reports some action. Uh, now, maybe this person reporting is simply in error, but Simon Foreman's account in 1611 of a, of a production of the play uh, has some differences from the text we suggest, we possess. We don't know if those differences are because of error on his part, you know, he misremembered, or because maybe the early version was different. But it certainly doesn't see, yeah, it certainly is satisfying in the theater. And as you say, it seems just, you know, just, just right in the theater. It has some real peculiarities, though. Um, you know, we can get into these later, but from, from your outline, I noted you want to talk about the good characters and so on and, and the ending of it. And there's some real oddities in the play that, you know, keep it, keep it fresh and fascinating. Yes, and before we come back to the play, we want to go to the history behind it. Of course, there is the gunpowder plot where Catholics were leading a plot to go under Parliament and blow it up, but they were caught and executed, and that was a big debate at the time over tyrannicide, over killing government agents, and over whether the Catholics were acting justly or whether they were demonic forces who, by God's providential hand, were stopped by the good Protestant government of England. And then, of course, Juan de Mariano was defending tyrannicide in certain instances. 
while many of the English voices were saying you should obey the king no matter what. And this debate exactly. is still and this debate is still played throughout all of Shakespeare's history plays as well. Yes, exactly. Um, the idea that I mean, Macbeth stages two regicides. It stages the killing. Well, I mean, it doesn't actually stage the killing of Duncan, but that does happen in the course of action. It stages the before and after that, and it stages, though it happens off stage, the killing of Macbeth. So two kings get killed in the play, and we're asked really to be horrified at the first, because that is, as you say, that is the cardinal sin for English would be uh, the killing of an anointed king. And then we're asked actually to applaud the second regicide, the killing of Macbeth. The bloody dog is dead. The time is free. We've gotten rid of this scourge, this terrible uh, thing. So Shakespeare's really trying to do the impossible here. He's trying to get us as as uh, offended as possible by the first one, and as relieved and and exultant as possible by the second. But uh, there's only one way you can do that for an, on an Elizabethan stage, and that is to call the second murder not really a regicide, but the killing of a tyrant. Now, even that wouldn't have done it for James himself, who believes that even tyrants should be tolerated. But for many in the audience, uh, people could accept the killing of a tyrant uh, by a rightful um, constituted authority. But therein lies the rub. What is a rightful constituted authority? For most people, it would have been uh, Duncan's son, uh, Malcolm and Donald Bain. They should have done the killing. Uh, because they were the legitimate heirs to the throne, and Macbeth was a tyrannical usurper. That's one way to to justify the action. But in fact, Macbeth is anointed, though that happens off stage. And Malcolm and Donald Bain don't do the killing. It's it's really left to Macduff, who's out for a private revenge, really, because his his wife and children have been killed. So Shakespeare's really taking all the elements, all the most hotly debated topics, tyrannicide, regicide, rebellion, rightful authority. And as you say, these are all at issue in the history plays. He's taking every one of these and mixing them up and playing with them and creating incredibly gripping drama where you really don't, uh, you're really forced to think about what's going on and, and to respond um, emotionally. And all this arises from a debate on free will and human action. Of course, people like Martin Luther and the Protestants and the Calvinists were saying that human action is not free in a true sense because God is the one who preordains everything. He is sovereign and he is the king over the universe. Whereas Erasmus and I think the general Catholic tradition was affirming that God was indeed sovereign and that he had power over the universe, but that humans were free and that they had free will and they were responsible. And in your introduction to the Norton edition, you note that Shakespeare is speaking in Roman Catholic terms, that Macbeth is acting from predetermined forces, but he is also acting of his own free will, and thus is all the more doubly responsible for whatever evil he has done. Yes, this this is, uh, that's very well summarized. I think um, the... One reading of the play is that the witches are in charge, okay, and and the witches, or or at least deterministic. Another reading is that he is fated. He has no free will. He's fated. It's been called a Calvinist tragedy, predetermined uh, damnation. I don't think that's the play at all. I don't think that's even dramatic, because then you're watching a puppet simply do what puppets have to do. And so, what's what's the where's the terror? Where's the fear? Where's the where's the drama? Where's the interest? It's not interesting to see a puppet. What's interesting seems to me that what's interesting is that Macbeth freely chooses damnation, and he does this in, in all those soliloquies. You know, when it's done, uh, it's done, uh, and so on. The uh, 
uh, I jump the life to come. I risk the life to come. If it were done when it was done, yes. Or well, it were done quickly. Yes. I'd risk the life to come. I'd, I'd dare damnation. I'll take it on. I'll take that chance if I can get what I want now. Well, that's that's Eve and Adam, and that's the nature of sin, as understood in in Catholic terms. And and I think by some Protestants too. Not all Protestants were strictly predetermined. Uh, uh, predestination types, but certainly the hotter Calvinist varieties were. So, so here and and Shakespeare seems to be changing his source in this regard. In in the original, in Hollandshed, Banquo is also part of the conspiracy. Whereas here, as if to make the point that you can say yes or no, Banquo hears the prophecy about his kids becoming kings, and he does nothing wrong. He he is he he says he's going to keep himself clean, and and Shakespeare seems to be saying you, you can choose you know you've got a choice to make and all those soliloquies in Macbeth where you know is this a dagger I see before me and what you know uh, and he says this is a, ne- a bell that that leads me to heaven or to hell I mean leads me to hell so he, he knows and he chooses and that's what's really terrifying about the play. Humans are capable of choosing self-destruction and evil and the destruction of everything that matters. And Shakespeare rather unblinkingly and said, you know, we're, we're capable. I mean, Seneca does this to some degree in his plays. And, and you get Dante, of course, in the Inferno, who, for which you can see, you know, people, cho- people can choose. And that's that's terrifying, and it's utterly dramatic. And um, I think that's the play. I think it's a play about damnation. And before I go on to quote the poetry, which is so good, it's almost as if Shakespeare is doing new and wonderful things with it, but I'll save the quotations for a little later. It almost yeah. feels a little different from the Greek tragedies where you have fate playing a bigger role than usual, but the terrifying effect is still there, especially in some of Euripides or Aeschylus' or Sophocles' play. And there's still the debates on human action and will and how the gods and fate play a role in all that. But in Macbeth, you have a stronger element of free will, and that might be due to the Christianity, I think. And then you have Shakespeare as Catholic, because... Recently, there was some book, I think this was some years ago, which was arguing that Shakespeare was actually an Orthodox Catholic. And you disagreed with that thesis, but you did believe that Shakespeare was much more Catholic than he was Protestant in some crucial ways, like in how he depicted nuns and friars and Catholic bishops and stuff like that. And in measure- Yeah, I don't... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can ever say... What we can say is that he was, he certainly um, left behind, we don't know what he believed personally, but he left behind a series of works in which there are various attitudes taken. There are sometimes stridently anti Catholic attitudes taken, as in some of the King John and some of the history plays. And then there are times in which he surprisingly he portrays. Uh, priests and friars and nuns with surprising sympathy, given the way they were made into caricatures. So we don't know what he actually believed or worshipped. And those people who claim he was a closet crypto Catholic encoding messages like secret. Yeah, words, I don't think so. I think he that's was crazy. He was everything and nothing. I think that's the best way to understand him as a poet, playwright, dramatist, and maybe as a human being. Yes, I, I think I, I like to say, you know, Milton, Dante was Catholic, Milton was Protestant, Shakespeare was a playwright. We, we don't know. You know, I mean, he, his characters take a range of views. Uh, but the issue of the Greek stuff and the classical stuff is very important because uh, Shakespeare knew of drama. He was taught, you know, what is a tragedy, what's drama, by looking at classical plays. The, the Greek plays were beginning to think he looked at some of those through in translation. There's a new movement out in scholarship, very interesting, trying to rehabilitate uh, the idea that 
Greek plays could have been known as Shakespeare, even if intermediated. But certainly he knew Seneca and Latin, Latin Roman, what we'd call Roman tragedy, and certainly he was deeply um, influenced by that. So, but the, the big difference is, you know, in those plays, you don't really have heaven, hell, angels, devils, and an articulated New Testament theory of behavior, which you do in Macbeth. That I mean, heaven and hell and God come up very frequently in the play. <laughs> it's just Shakespeare saying, you're really not in a third century BC world. You're in a world where there's a God, Macbeth. And, you know, when Orson Welles did, Orson Welles heard this music in the play, and when he did his his film and his production, he, he amplified the music by putting in Christian symbols, you know, crosses and such, to try to define the world, the ethical world in which Macbeth operates. And, you know, it's a little heavy-handed, but I think he's right. Uh, Macbeth operates in a world in which there are prayers, blessings, and curses, in which, you know, why doesn't he get away with the murder? I mean, but it, the very night of the murder, Duncan's horses eat each other. There are these strange portents in the world, you know, a mousing, uh, a hawk is killed by a mousing owl. There are storms. Why is that? Who's who's doing that? <laughs> you know, why is the universe recoiling in horror at something a human being does down here? Well, the universe is obviously not neutral. The universe is obviously engaged, protesting, and uh, and so he he's. That's one reason that he can't get away with it. He doesn't he doesn't live in a world that is without a divine moral order, despite the witches, or maybe even because of them. He lives in a world in which there is some moral order, and he violates that. But the second reason he can't get away with it is internal. It's his own conscience. And this is the most powerful and beautiful part of the play, I think, because it'd be easy to portray Macbeth as a monster. And in some ways, he is a monster. He does terrible, monstrous things, killing, you know, ordering the killing of the dust kids and all that. I mean, but he speaks that poetry that lets you know no one suffers more for what he does than he. He is constantly suffering. From the, from the second he goes down this dark path, he is miserable. He can't sleep at night. He can't eat his meals in peace. He looks at Duncan with envy, you know, wishing he were in the grave. He says some of the saddest lines in Shakespeare. You know, he says that, I have lived long enough. My way of life has fallen into the seer. Yes, the yellow leaf, right? Yeah, yeah. What's sadder than that? I mean, so... Uh, so the ending of the play, you know, some people, there are some productions in which, when and Patrick Stewart did this quite wonderfully, uh, when when Macduff goes to kill Macbeth, Macbeth takes the sword and actually guides it right into his heart because he, he has lived long enough and he wants the misery of this life to be over. So one way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. I want to get a little into the poetry of Macbeth. Of course, I can't quote lots of it due to the space of the podcast and all the stuff I want to discuss, but I want to begin with Macbeth's first two soliloquies. Yeah. Two truths are told as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. I thank you, gentlemen. The supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill, why hath it if good, why, if ill, why hath it given me earnest of success commencing in a truth? I'm fain of corridor. 
If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose already image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. My thoughts, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shake so my single state of man that function is smothered in surmise and nothing is but what is not. And then you see in the poetry that there are a lot of, like, enchantments, the lines are a little running over as if they're trying to express themselves beyond the bounds of the poetic lines, and you see something very powerful happening through Macbeth and through the other characters, and this is Shakespeare at the height of his powers, this is Macbeth thinking and mulling through his abilities as well as the stuff that comes on him. Yes, it's, it's absolutely marvelous. That That's a wonderful... Uh, speech, and that nothing is but what is not. I mean, it's it's as if the thing in his head has taken over his life. It's more real. Um, and he, this first soliloquy, which is in one three, is the time where he's he's still got our sympathy. In fact, our admiration. And and, and like anyone confronted with a, a major temptation. You know, he's giving, he's trying to figure it out. It cannot be ill, cannot be good. If it's, but it has told the truth. I am sane of Cordor. And then you get to the very specific, you know, the, the suggestion that the knock at my ribs against the use of nature. And, and so uh, Bangor says our partner's wrapped, and the word wrapped because the soliloquy is spoken while others are on stage, uh, but through the convention, we're the only ones who can hear it. And wrapped means, of course, from Raptu, seized. He's seized. He's taken over. <laughs> he's seized by what? By his own ambition, by um, you know, his, his uh, desire for something. So so that that really does set us up for what I think you're going to read next is one seven, right? The next soliloquy. Yes. If it were done when tis done, then through well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be all and the end all. Here, but here upon this bank and shoal of time, we'd jump the life to come. But in these cases we'd still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions which being taught return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust, first as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides this Duncan hath borne his faculty so meek, hath been so clear in his great office that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity like a naked new-born babe striding the blast or head of heaven's cherubin scythed upon the heartless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye the tear should drown the wind. I have no spurs to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. Yeah, that's really... Um, so you have that opening in which the very syntax, the very construction of the clauses um, express what the clauses are saying. So it's, if it were done, Winton's son, it's almost a tongue twister, and, uh, you know, I asked the students slowly to untangle this. If this... If the assassination could trammel up the consequence, that but this blow might be the be all, and we're saying, yeah, 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 what, what, what? And it's as if he's syntactically evading finishing the thought, the very consequences, the very then clause. If this, then that. And we, he, he keeps postponing the then clause. And that's really what the speech is about, postponing or evading consequence, the then. And, but then when it comes, we jump the life to come, we risk the life to come, it comes with great finality. I would dare damnation. And what the play teaches us is you 
can't really evade consequence. You can't, you can't escape. And then marvelously, he says, you know, in these cases, we have judgment here, which, which returned to plague the inventor. So even if he can escape damnation, eternal justice, there's, there's a kind of order in down here on earth, which, which would not enable him to get away with it, which would come back to get him. He would, and this was very orthodox political theory. One of the problems with rebellion is once you strike an anointed king, you show everybody how it's done. You make it really easy. They say, all right, we're going to come get you. And this is what you know, Shakespeare does in Richard III, Richard II, when uh, they're going to kill uh, Gloucester, Gloucester's dream, and, and, and he says, you know, you can't, you can't murder. And they said, well, wait a minute, you, you did some murder. You know, you, you're teaching us how to do it. You showed us how to do it. <laughs> you know? And that's, if you multiplied by many things, if you strike down an anointed king, then all order is lost. Because you can't then claim, as, as Claudius tries to in Hamlet, you know, I'm the anointed king. Yeah, but you killed the king. So... Uh, so he sees this doomsday mechanism, this 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 uh, this earthly shadow of divine justice, even down here. And then he he relays all of Duncan's uh, good qualities. And and this king, Duncan, is much better than the king in Hollandshed, who was a mixed figure. And Macbeth, by the way, is much worse in some ways than the Macbeth figure in Hollandshed. Shakespeare is making it really interesting because the, the king in um, King Duff, who, who was murdered in Hollandshed, was actually kind of a mixed figure himself. But Shakespeare makes Duncan, you know, or at least this, this very virtuous character. And then you have the imagery of the children, the naked newborn babe upon the blast, and that's an absolutely crucial image in the play is children, particularly ones who are hurt or attacked. So you have that happening literally on stage with Macduff's children, one of the most horrifying moments in all Shakespeare, the killing of children on stage, or at least one child on stage. So I think the stage direction calls for a few. And you have Lady Macbeth saying the most terrible lines in Shakespeare about um, you know, I know what it is to give suck and uh, how tender it is to love the babe that milks me, but I would have dashed its brains out. And I, you know, this image of child killing that marks Macbeth as inhuman and as a tyrant and as somebody we want to see killed. We want to see him deposed because he's hurting kids. So, imagistically and also in fact. So, yeah, that speech. But it's funny, he argues better against it than for it. <laughs> but still goes the wrong way. And I want to go to the dagger speech, which is one of the most beautiful things that Shakespeare ever wrote. And I have it by memory, yeah. but I'll just read it now. Oh, how lovely. Good. Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight, or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet, in form as palpable as this which now I draw. Thou marshalest me the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses, or else worth all the rest. I see thee still, and on thy blade and dodge and gouts of blood which was not so before. There's no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now all the one half-world nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtain's sleep. Witchcraft celebrates Pelhecate's offerings and withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf, whose howls his watch. Thus will his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides towards his design, moves like a ghost. Thou fur and sure set earth, 
Hear not my steps, the way they walk, for fear the very stones prate of thy whereabout, and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. Whiles I threat, he lives, words to the heat of deeds too cold breath gives. I go, and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. Very nice. Yes, very beautifully done. And, and there you have it. The uh, And this is, of course, a big challenge for a director. What do you do with that air-drawn dagger? And it's most directors sensibly make it an illusion that Macbeth sees or thinks he sees and that the audience does not. Occasionally, a director will try some, you know, some, some crazy thing, particularly in films, where they'll show some sort of imaginary dagger to the audience. I think that's a mistake. I think the idea is the heated imagination is conjuring us up. But um, he says, thou marshalest me the way that I was going. And that really gets us to that free will. I had chosen this path, and the supernatural encouragements are just that, encouragement. They're not really... Determine it. And then that, and this is, goes back to what you said about the poetry being so extraordinary and unusual. This sort of line, witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings and withered murder, alarmed by Sentinel the Wolf and so on, and the business of Tarkin. That's, there, aren't, there aren't really other characters who speak like that, but that kind of... Um, supernatural eeriness to him. Uh, I mean, it, you know, G. Wilson Knight wrote a famous essay years ago on the Othello music, in which he 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 analyzed and beautifully described what made Othello's speech very individual, very unique to him, that sense of, you know, the propontic and the hellspont and all the, the sense of a traveler with that exotic imagery. Macbeth never speaks like that. But then again, uh, Macbeth speaks like this, and this is the traffic with the dark side. Witchcraft celebrates Pale Hecate's offerings. And then when Davenant comes along and other people, they're going to bring, and maybe even the Hecate in this play comes from another playwright in the fourth act. They're going to amplify that dark supernaturalism and bring it on stage. More witch scenes, you know, uh, so that became very important. But if you look at that also, at the end of it, the very stones prayed, for fear the very stones prayed of my whereabout. It's as if the stones themselves will, the inanimate nature will rise up and reveal the murderer. And that, that idea that nature itself will not tolerate this transgression that comes up again and again in the play, um, he, where he says, you know, um, uh, he talks about when the ghost appears. He talks about uh, blood will have blood. You know, he can't he can't get away with it. It's it's not going to. There's something in blood and in stone and these inanimate objects that won't tolerate. Transgression, you can't, the world is not yours to play with. You can't do what you want, even if you have the power to get away with it momentarily. There are always going to be consequences. So, um, And then there's that dramatic bell that rings and ends that reverie. And uh, little stage actions like the bell ringing and then the knock on the door, the knock on the gate, rather, uh, those stage actions bring us back into the normal world we know and and advance the action. So it's, uh, yeah, masterfully constructed. And then we have, we have to talk about Lady Macbeth because she is partly the one who spurs him on in a sense by telling him that you're not a man if you don't do it this way and you need the ability to catch the nearest way and the illness that should attend ambition. And then it's, yeah. in a sense, Lady Macbeth is somewhat a little more evil than Macbeth 
at some point, but then she becomes guiltier and feels guiltier in the famous blood on the hands scene. And then she, it's implied that she commits suicide by the very end. And then it's, she also speaks in these supernatural terms. Yes. And that conversation you mentioned earlier that, uh, when that, um, about being a man and, and this is, this is really crucial to the relationship. It's been said that the Macbeths have a great marriage. <laughs> as, as marriages go, they, they confide in each other. They share each other's plans. They go the wrong way, but they're close. And, and to some degree, that's true. People have really thought about um, her and, and what kind of power she has over him. And, and uh, that whole dialogue about being a man... Patrick Stewart said that what he wanted to do, he, he had um, a very young Lady Macbeth, young, beautiful Kate Fleetwood played Lady Macbeth, and Stewart was in his 60s, or maybe even 70s when he played Macbeth, and he was much older, and when she hits him with, so she, she was sort of his trophy wife, and when she says, you know, you're not really much of a man if you don't do this, that really stings him because he's the old, wounded warrior. He wants to keep his beautiful young wife. And and there's this element of um, of uh, sexual desire that plays out. Even Ian McKellen and Judy Dench uh, said that was extremely important to their wonderful uh, rendering. Very different from uh, Stewart's and Fleetwood's later on, but uh, they said that the idea of the, the physical love between the two was very important for the power she wields over him, and that she's a great example of the second thing that brings Macbeth down. The first being the sort of natural providential order, and the second being the internal conscience, because you see so clearly the psychological breakdown of her in the hand washing scene. You know where she is devastated by what she has done. She is. She is completely broken, and um, there's a YouTube of Judy Dench playing this scene that I always show to my classes, always show this, where she simply, with just a single camera, commands the scene and lets out the most piteous scream you've ever heard, as if she's already in hell. When Kate Fleawood was doing this, she, she mentioned Judy Dench's the screen and to try to get that level of despair and pain she imagined herself beneath an elevator that was coming down relentlessly upon her and and she was trapped and there was no way to go and that was the screen that Kate Fleet would use so um, yes you're absolutely right you see this total change she's totally in command and she's completely powerful and then she becomes this broken figure and dies off stage. Yeah. And some feminist critics, understandably, are a little un- unnerved by the way Shakespeare depicts women either as the villains or as the people who get killed on or off stage. And then Lady Macbeth is this portrait of female power at its worst and most toxic. And then when the play ends, all the men are getting the power again. Yet I don't think Shakespeare exactly is misogynistic. I don't think he, the creator of so many wonderful women, would be misogynistic or would write Lady Macbeth from that perspective. I'm sure he would have had anxieties, but that doesn't mean he hates women or that he is like trying to teach us that we should oh, keep right. women under our hands. Well, the, her- the heroes of the comedies are, are largely female. You know, Viola, Roslyn... Um, so and and also uh, Isabella, I'd argue, and um, in Measure for Measure, and uh, Helen, and All's Well, and you have magnificent figures like Cleopatra. I mean Juliet. I mean you have these absolutely magnificent women. Desdemona and Othello is becoming more and more played as a strong, uh, strong, uh, fi- stronger figure. And there's been nobody's ever written a part for a woman like Cleopatra. <laughs> though it was played by a boy. But, I mean, that is the most powerful 
and magnificent, most magnificent poetry. But, um, yeah, on the issue of women in the play, because you do have the witches, and people have said, you know, are they female? Is he demonizing females? Lady Macduff is a figure who has drawn more attention lately because she's a wonderful mother, wife, and she has very few scenes. When Davenant in the, in the 17th century came to re, revise the play, he gave her a lot more. He gave her a lot more scenes, and made her kind of the good counterpoint to the Lady uh, Macbeth figure. Um, but it's an interesting uh, side note that when I was editing the play, one of the hardest decisions was what to call Lady Macbeth because she's never called that a play. She's called Macbeth's wife, Lady, and so on. So if you you, you know, Lady Macbeth, you could argue, is, uh, you know, it's a critical fiction. But then again, you know, I could have called her Macbeth's lady, but that that would also offend modern sensibilities because that makes her even more of an adjunct of Macbeth. Uh, so I just decided to go with the usual decision with a footnote saying, you know, this... Uh, this is how the characters come to be known in 400 years of theater. So I wanted to keep the name, but it's only a matter of time before an edition comes out in which she's not, uh, not Lady Macbeth, but something else. Yeah. And now I want to talk about the good characters like Duncan, Malcolm Macduff, of course, Lady Macduff, who don't seem as vivid on the first as Macbeth or the other evil characters, but they do have an importance. And of course, Malcolm seems a little bit dull. Macduff is a little more vibrant because of the complexity that Shakespeare imagines him with as like the good alternative to Macbeth's masculinity. And then you have, of course, good triumphing over evil in the end, or so it seems. Yes, exactly. I think, um, well, you're absolutely right. They're not nearly as vivid. Donald Bain and Malcolm have no good lines, and they're not on stage much, and they don't get the role of killing uh, Macbeth. They don't get that, though that would make more sense, uh, politically speaking. So it's given to um, Macduff, and and I think we can add Banquo and Flay on the list of good Good guys. Yes. Uh, it's given to Macduff, and Macduff is the is a strange character because one is he's flawed. He's left his wife and children um, undefended, and he's worried about that. But he's done it for good reasons. He's done it to try to get this revolution. He's going to to go to England and come back and and uh, and uh, unseat the tyrant. And he's also. Um, He's the most ineloquent of characters. I related in the introduction, after seeing a production of Macbeth in Stratford once, I was in in the pub across from the theater, and the actor playing Macduff walked in. And I said to him, you know, I went over to him and said, you know, can I buy you a beer? Will you tell me about Macduff? And he said, sure, you know, actors will tell you anything for beer. So we started talking about Macduff, and he said, you know, I've played this role five times for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he said, the damnedest thing is, he has no good lines. He says things like, my voice is in my sword. I have no words. Unlike Shakespeare's, many Shakespeare's good characters, you know, he doesn't get a big speech. And on stage, this is a real problem for the actor because you're trying to create a moral and physical counterforce to somebody who has, to Macbeth, who has terrific eloquence, magnificent uh, poetry. So he, he said this was a real problem for him in the role. And <clears throat> I've always thought about that and thought, you know, it's all about the ordinary guy, the ordinary inarticulate. He's not a hero. He's flawed. He doesn't have great lines. But he's the he's the guy who will strike down what becomes a monster. And and that's that's 
what the drama is Shakespeare's portraying. That it's not going to take a hero here. He's going to show you it's an ordinary man who is forced to do something heroic. And, yes. And that. Now, the interesting thing about Malcolm and Donald Bain is that in some versions of the story, they are not good. They're not innocent. Roman Polanski's film, um, you have at the end of the... Uh, he has a scene at the end after Macduff has killed Macbeth. He has a scene in which Malcolm goes back to the heath no, it's Donald Bain. Yeah, Malcolm, and it's Donald Bain who goes back to the Heath to consult the witches because he wants to get the throne that Malcolm now has. <laughs> so it's like we're turning back the wheel, like it's all going to start over again. Exactly, yes, it's all going to happen. And and he has this darker view of the play that that it's all about human, you know, human evil, which never ends. There's never any redemption. There's never any um, cleansing, purgation of the monster. You can never say the time is free because the time is always shackled. It's always going to have uh, the, the darkness of the human heart. Which brings me to the ending when Macbeth has this beautiful soliloquy, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And the way the play ends, it's Macbeth giving some parting words where he's going to like fight to the end. And he becomes a kind of hero villain in those few lines which aren't like the most eloquent but still have power to them. This is after he realizes that Macduff had a caesarean section birth in his own life and thus was not a woman born in the technical equivocal sense. And Macduff and Macbeth is killed on stage or off stage, depending on which adaptation you look at, and thus right. everything is restored, but there's a bit of ambiguity. Do you think that's in the play itself, notwithstanding Roman Polanski's adaptation? Yes, yeah, uh, definitely. The, the stage action is tricky there because it, there may be some corruption in the text, but the speech, as you well point out, um, you know, there's the, the that's what he's done. What he's done is managed to create a world in which he cannot sleep, he cannot eat, in which everything is meaningless tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And Ian McKellen brilliantly said the most important word in that speech is and. And, and, and that it just goes on forever. Every day is as bad as the one before it. There's no redemption. There's, he's he's killed everything that matters to him, and he's sort of doomed like a bear. He says, you know, tied to the stake, and that that hypnotic sort of. Uh, uh, Ian McKellen also said quite brilliantly that Shakespeare gives a great gift to the actor in that speech, and that is that what the actor can say with absolute sincerity is to bring up that image of the poor player that struts and frets his hour upon stage. Because that's what Ian McKellen is. He said, that's who I am, really. I'm, I'm Ian McKellen playing Macbeth. I am that poor player strutting it. So I can say that with absolute truth. And it's that truth and conviction that radiates through the rest of the speech and gives us a sense of the darkness and the despair and the nihilism. The speech is wrenched out of context to say that's Shakespeare talking about how nothing matters. Shakespeare's a nihilist. No, it's Macbeth saying that at this point. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just a wonderful moment. And, and that she should have died hereafter, which he says before the tomorrow line when he's talking about Lady Macbeth. She should have died hereafter. Meaning what? Meaning she she should 
have committed suicide after the battle, or she shouldn't have committed suicide. She should have died naturally. I mean, it's a it's a it's a wonderfully ambivalent line. We really don't know what he's thinking till he 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 get, gives us the rest of that. There would have been a time for such a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of Macbeth, as you can tell. I mean, I read it yes. in high school, and I've loved it ever since. Of course, Shakespeare wrote, in my opinion, greater and bigger plays like Hamlet, King Lear, Antony and Cleopatra, Henry the Fourth, the two parts, and various other plays. Of course, Macbeth is in that company, too. And one reason why I like Macbeth uniquely is because of its rapid pace, because of its poetry. The poets have always liked this play, and for good reason. It's a poetic play unlike any other. And, of course, it looks forward to all the supernatural stuff of the great late romances he writes, like Winter's Tale and The Tempest. And, of course, it's fascinating to be engaged with an evil character who also is eloquent and who is smart, or at least imaginative, and who yeah. has a moral center that is perverted. And then I'm reminded of Walter White, Humbert Humbert, some of the other evil characters like Raskolnikov or Stavrogin who are evil but who are endued with imaginative power and thus become a kind of inverted good. And especially Milton Satan, who is the hero of Paradise Lost, in my opinion. Then that doesn't necessarily mean he's a good guy, but he is the hero for what it's worth. And Macbeth is kind of influential to Satan for the envy, for the torments it within, and for the way he corrupts everything around him. Well, that's, yeah, I think that Helen Gardner wrote an essay a long time ago on... Um, on a damnation, and she wrote about Paradise Lost and Satan and and uh, Adam and Eve and uh, um, Milton. But you're right; these uh, and, and rather Macbeth. These um, these figures have such power uh, to to articulate our deepest fears and our deepest things. And I would say uh, on Milton and Paradise Lost, I'd say Satan. What Satan is the epic hero of Paradise Lost, only to show us how inadequate and evil epic heroism is, because that is founded on pride, which in the Christian dispensation is the deadliest sin. So the real hero of Paradise Lost, in my view, is Christ. That's who Milton the makes Messiah. the real hero. But what he wants to do is show us that our love for the swaggering, the proud, the, you know, uh, um, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven, you know, that sort of heroism is essentially corrupt. It's essentially wrong. Now, and we have that with Macbeth, too. I mean, Macbeth dies with that. Lay on Macduff, Dan behaving, first grudge, hold enough. There's something we admire in that. You know, there's some some sort of, as you say, perverted beauty in it. Yeah. Evil in the service of good. I mean, a, a, a good moment in the service of evil. Yes. I want to thank but you. Oh, no, continue yeah, on. You've always loved this play, for, I think for good reason. And the nice thing about reading Shakespeare in the 21st century, in the age, in the digital age, is that so many productions and moments are available to us for the classroom or for where so we can we can actually see some of these great figures. Even Anthony Sher, Anthony Sher did a wonderful Macbeth, and, and and he actually went and talked to murderers before he played the role. He went and talked to two murderers, one who was imprisoned for a knife murder. And he was trying to get the sense of what it would be like to kill somebody before he he did Macbeth killing Duncan. And uh, and and his interviews are available and sections from his performance are available, just as some of the others I've mentioned, Orson Welles, Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, you know, Stuart and Fleetwood, so that anyone teaching Macbeth now or reading it or enjoying it has a range of options. So I'm really I really welcome the digital age for Shakespeare. I agree. I saw some of Ian McKellen's work, and it's quite masterful. 
he's kind of yeah. an inspiration for me to memorize Shakespeare and to inhabit it within myself, within my bones, to use a concrete image. Yeah, that's, well, that's really the, that's really something we've kind of lost with the digital age is, is memorization and, 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 and how the, the word dwells within and inhabits us and changes our thinking and being. That is beautiful. That's what I, what I aspire to, uh, to try to get people to do in my teaching and uh, uh, writing about the place, you know. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Your thoughts are fascinating, and they're a great addition to this podcast. And we're talking about one of the most beautiful plays ever in the English language and even in the world. And this was about an hour well spent, in my humble opinion. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and thanks for the very penetrating questions and insights and for the wonderful reading of the soliloquy. Loved it. Thank you. Until next time, this has been The Letter of Liberty, where we have discussed literature, liberty, politics, history, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit WCWP.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.